Well, it's good to be back with you guys this week, and we're in a series that we're calling Future Tense, and this week we're in the third part of the series. And uh, we're in this series because there seems to be a lot of fear, uh, a lot of worry about the future, what's gonna happen, weird things are going on, it's kind of crazy in our culture. And so we're addressing questions like, you know, what is next on God's agenda? Because you gotta understand, when we talk about the future, we're really talking about God's plan. This is not stuff that's based on, you know, what's going on with the planet or, 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 or what's going on globally when it comes to wars and all the anxiety that's out there or anything that has to do with global warming. This is not, when we talk about the future, we're talking about a biblical topic. Now, God may use all of those things in the process, but you gotta understand, God has a plan. So what if it is the end of the world, right? And if that is the case, what is it that we need to know instead of fearing the future, we can literally run to the future and embrace the future because we're excited about the plan that God has put in place for all of us. So we're talking about that. And so far we've learned uh, that one day Jesus is going to return to this earth. And I'm not sure we really believe that even as Christians, but it tells us over 300 times in the New Testament that Jesus is going to return to this earth. In fact, this says more about the return of Jesus Christ to this earth than it says about his birth and his death combined. So I think we can take that one to the bank. One day, the father's gonna look to the son. The son doesn't even know when it's gonna happen. He's gonna go, go, go get him, go get him. Go back to the earth that you created. And it's gonna set some things in motion. We learned that there's gonna be judgment. Each and every one of us, we are going to stand before God. We are going to be judged. And then after that, every person that's ever lived either is gonna be assigned to heaven for all eternity, or they're gonna be assigned to hell for all eternity. Now, last weekend we talked about heaven. I gave you 10 biblical facts about heaven. And if you weren't able to uh, watch last weekend or be a part of one of the services, I would encourage you, go back and listen to that one. Now, this weekend we're talking about the one we're not all that crazy about talking about. You know, we're talking about hell. And so if you showed up this weekend expecting the warm fuzzies, uh, no pun intended there, by the way. Uh, if you showed up expecting the warm fuzzies this weekend, it's probably not gonna happen. But I do want you to hang in there because I'm gonna give you some information over the next few minutes that you need to know that literally can remove fear from your future. You can walk out of these buildings, you, you can turn off the TV, the computer at home, and you can know 100% what your future is going to look like. So we're gonna talk about hell. By the way, the Bible talks about hell, mentions hell 167 times. Yet many theologians and pastors, denominations across the country, they're rejecting the idea that there's actually a literal hell. In fact, I came, uh, recently saw this survey that said that 35% of Baptists, 54% of Presbyterians, 58% of Methodists, and 60% of Epis Episcopalians no longer believe in a literal hell. And that seems to be a trend among churches and denominations and, 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 and seminaries in America. And, and, and you know, I kind of understand that. Even as a pastor, as a Christian, sometimes I'm uncomfortable with the fact that I, that I worship and love a God who I know loves me unconditionally, and he loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son to die for the world so that we could be reconciled back into a relationship with God. Yet that very same God would have a place that he created called hell that a lot of our friends, a lot of our neighbors, a lot of our coworkers, a lot of our, 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 the people that we rub shoulders with every day, that may be where they spend eternity. So I can, I can see not wanting to talk about it, not even wanting to accept the fact that there is a place. I don't get any enjoyment out of addressing the topic of hell. I think it was a tough topic for Jesus, but you know what? Jesus had a lot to say about hell. In fact, if you go through the gospels, you will discover that Jesus preached on hell 33 times. Now let's put that in perspective. Jesus was only public in his ministry for what? Three years, 36 months. So in 36 months, 
Jesus preached on hell 33 times. You would not go to Jesus's church. I'm telling you that right now. I mean, I went back and looked in my notes. I preach on the topic of hell about once every four to five years. I mean, yeah, we allude to it. We discuss it from time to time. But I mean, a literal message on hell, maybe once every four or five years. Jesus spoke on it almost every month of his ministry. Why would Jesus do that? I think it was simply because Jesus did not want people to go there. And I think one of the reasons that we have to discuss it as a church is in the same way, one, we don't want to go there, but we don't want our friends, we don't want our loved ones, we don't want our neighbors or our coworkers to go there either. And so we're going to address this topic. With all of that in mind, if you have your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 16. I want you to see what Jesus has to say about hell. By the way, we're getting ready to look at a very, very interesting story. Every indication is that Luke chapter 16 is an actual account. It's a true story. And let me tell you why I say that. First of all, there's nothing that identifies what Jesus is getting ready to teach as a parable. And it's interesting, if you read through the Gospels, often it will say, and Jesus told them a parable, or Jesus shared this parable. There's nothing indicates that this is a parable. Second, it's not a simile. Jesus doesn't say hell is like, or this is like, so that's not the case. But this is what's really interesting. Jesus talks in this story about a specific individual, a specific beggar, and he actually has a name, Lazarus. No other parables does anyone have names. So Lazarus, not the Lazarus, by the way, that Jesus raised from the dead, a different Lazarus. Lazarus is a very common name in the days of Jesus. But we're looking at a true story. And it's interesting, the story begins as a study in contrast between the two main characters. We have a man who's very, very rich, but he's not a believer. He doesn't believe in God. And then we have a man who's very, very poor. In fact, he's described as a beggar, but he does believe in God. So let's read the story beginning in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. I mean, it's an incredible scene of poverty and, and the man is just broken. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him, that would be his soul and spirit, to Abraham's side. Sometimes this is referred to as Abraham's bosom. Sometimes it's referred to as paradise. But that's where they took his spirit and soul. But I'm confident that his body was taken to the garbage dump, which was located outside the city, and his body was burned with all the other trash of the city, which was very common in those days when someone was poor and could not afford a burial. But you'll notice in verse 22, I'll say more about that later, by the way. It says, the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. You say, well, Mike, that doesn't say hell. No, it says Hades. Let me tell you what the word Hades is. The word Hades is the Greek word for hell. The New Testament was written in Greek, translated it to English, but a few years ago, the translators, I don't know because they felt it was too offensive or maybe not politically correct, but a lot of our translators began, instead of calling it hell, went to the original Greek word and referred to it as Hades. It would be like if the Bible originally was written in Spanish, but then it was translated to English. English, when it got to where it says Jesus is living water, it would say Jesus is living agua. And we would say, why would you do that? But that's what's going on here. So in Hades, which is hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So I understand his body is buried probably a fine burial, probably a gorgeous tomb somewhere that he had purchased ahead of time but his soul and his spirit. In other words, that part of him that made up his personality, the part of, of him that made up his conscience, the part of him that gave him the ability to make decisions and to make choices. In other words, that part of all of us that you can't touch. 
okay? It's the soul, it's the spirit part of us. Now we read that he's residing in Hades. He's residing in hell. Verse 24, so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, 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 Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I don't know if you realize it or not, but this is a phenomenal scene. It's as if God pulls back our curtain and takes us into a place, into a setting where we've never seen before. No one has ever been before. And when I look at this scene, I find four answers to four common misunderstandings that we have probably all heard in regards to hell. Let me just give them to you. Here's the first misunderstanding. Hell is just something that ministers use to scare people. Ever heard that? It's not real. It's just something we use to control you, right? It's just something we use to manipulate you because if we can scare you and control you and manipulate you, then we can get you coming to church. And if we get you coming to church, we all know what the bottom line is. Then I can separate you from your money. See, that's really what it's all about. It's about me getting your money. That's what they must teach us in cemetery. I mean, seminary. But anyway, <laughs> a lot of people believe that this idea of hell is just something that ministers use to scare people. It's not really a real place. Well, let's see if that's true. Let's go back to, let's go back to the story. Notice in verse 23, it says, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. There's several things we notice in this story. First of all, we can see that in this conscious state, he's able to see. We just read that he was in agony so he can feel. He talks to Abraham so we know that he can speak. He hears Abraham in response so we know that he can hear. There's taste. He says, could you have Lazarus just dip the tip of his finger in water and touch my tongue? Not only that, he still has his memory. Look what it says in verse 25. Abraham replied, son, remember, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. He answered, verse 27, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. So he remembers his life. He remembers what he did and what he didn't do. He remembers those that he left behind on planet earth. And you'll notice his concern in verse 27. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. So understand, hell isn't something that ministers came up with to scare people, to control people, to manipulate people. According to the Bible, it is a real, literal place. The Bible talks about it 167 times. Jesus preached about it 33 times. If there is no literal hell, then you have to really question the authenticity of Jesus. Second misunderstanding. If I go to hell, I'll be there with all my buddies. You ever heard that? Hey, how bad can it be? I'll be there with all my buddies, right? By the way, I want to just share something here. Keep in mind, this story is describing hell before the resurrection. 
Now, I told you last week, there are two different heavens. There's a temporary heaven where if you were to die today, you would go to a temporary heaven. But then there's gonna be a permanent heaven, as we learned last week, where Jesus is going to destroy this earth. He's going to recreate it. And in our resurrected bodies, we are going to live forever and ever in this beautiful, perfect paradise as God recreates this earth. So there's a temporary heaven, and then there will be a permanent heaven. In the same way, there is a temporary hell, and there is going to be a permanent hell. And before the resurrection of Jesus, every person that died, they went to one of two areas. One place was an area of torment. It would be called Hades here in the story. The other area is referred to, as I said, Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom, paradise. It it was kind of like a waiting room for Old Testament saints, okay? Not like Beetlejuice, not that kind of waiting room, not kind of weird, but just a cool place to hang out. In fact, the Bible teaches that while Jesus was in the tomb, remember Jesus died, For three days he was in the tomb and then he came out of the grave. You may be wondering what was Jesus up to during that three day period. You may remember a couple of Easter's ago I talked about what Jesus was actually doing during that three day period. And one of the things he, he did was he went to the lower earth and he gathered all of these Old Testament saints who had faith looking forward to the day of the Messiah. He gathered them together and he took them for the first time to heaven. Paul talked about it in Ephesians chapter four, verse eight. It says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then he writes, what does he ascended mean except he also descended to the lower earthly regions. See, that's why Jesus said to the thief on the cross, hey, today I'll be with you, you'll be with me, we'll be in paradise together. Because Jesus knew that while he was in that tomb, his body, his spirit was going to go to this place called paradise, gather up all those saints and take them to heaven. So understand this is before the resurrection of Jesus. This is temporary hell. But it's interesting, over in Matthew chapter eight, Jesus, when he begins to describe permanent hell, he describes it as a place of total darkness. And the Greek word that Jesus chose to use for darkness means the absence of light, total darkness. Have you ever been in a situation, by the way, where there was a total absence of light? I can really only remember one time in my life and when we were drilling wells in the Central African Republic, we would go and uh, we would spend part of our time out in the rainforest is where the pygmies lived. And we would go into their villages and live with them and start churches there and drill wells in their villages. And I'll never forget one night we kind of stayed in these, these thatch huts that the pygmies would build that looked so, sort of like igloos, kind of a half circle. And uh, I was in one of these things. And I'll never forget Jim came in that night and he really, I mean, he just went out of his way tucking the mosquito net up under my sleeping bag. And I'm like, man, I tell you, these must be vicious mosquitoes out here in the rainforest. He says, it's not the mosquitoes I'm worried about, it's the snakes. In fact, he said, if you get up to go to the restroom in the middle of the night, make sure you check your boots. They love, your boots are warm, they love to get in your boots. That makes it very comforting about two or three in the morning and if if nature calls, right? But I'll never forget, I had to go to the restroom, middle of the night, got up, turned my flashlight on, checked my boots, no snake, put my boots on, walked out, pitch black, turned my flashlight on, I'm looking for a place to go to the restroom, which is unnerving enough, and my flashlight goes out. (laughs) And what do you do with a flashlight when it goes out? Sensible thing, you beat it on your leg, right? Don't you do that? Because somehow that's gonna magically make it come back on. But all I can remember is beating that thing on my leg and, it would, and you hear all these noises and there's all these animals that could kill you in a heartbeat and the light, it was, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm like, I mean, I'm literally sucking my thumb, I'm scared to death. That is the closest I've ever come to absolute darkness because of the canopy of the rainforest, there was no light from the stars, no light, there was absolute blackness. 
horrible feeling. So understand in permanent hell, that's what it's gonna be like. No light whatsoever, only darkness, and there's one inescapable factor I find in every reference to hell in the Bible, and it's this. It's the absence of companionship. You will never see, you will never talk to another person in hell. It is total abandonment. No sense of companionship with your buddies, okay? I can promise you that right now. Third misunderstanding. Hell will be a relief compared to the suffering I've endured on earth. I've actually had people say to me, nothing could be as bad as what I've had to put up with on this earth. Well, let's see if that's true. For example, go back to the story. This Greek word that's translated two different ways in the story. Sometimes it's translated torment. Sometimes it's translated agony. But you can see it in the story. For, it's the same exact Greek word, verse 23, in Hades where he was in torment. Verse 24, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony. That's the exact same Greek word in this fire. Verse 25, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Verse 28, I have five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, if you were to look up the word torment in the Greek Webster dictionary, you know how you can look up a word in English in the Webster and it will have three or four different definitions? You would find that this word that's translated torment or agony actually has three different meanings. It was used, first of all, to describe acute pain from debilitating disease. The second definition was used to describe an implement designed to torture, and it literally was a rack that had spikes, and they would put the victim on the rack, and they would stretch them, and as they stretched them, their body would, would be pulled down into the spike. It was to torture them. And then third, it was used to describe fire that was hot enough to melt metals. That's the word that Jesus uses here in Luke chapter 16. So you gotta understand it's a distressing scene. And I think a lot of people I've heard, they don't believe that, 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 that hell is a place of literal fire. Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter eight, verse 12, because in it, and this is the part of the message I really wanted to avoid, but I gotta tell it to you, okay? Jesus describes hell in Matthew chapter eight, verse 12, as a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And when Jesus is teaching here, Jesus uses a word for hell that no one else ever used for hell. But when he used it, his Jewish audience, he was speaking to a Jewish audience in Matthew chapter eight, his Jewish audience knew exactly what he was talking about. Jesus used the Greek word Gehenna. And he actually used it 11 times in the gospels, Gehenna. Gehenna is a reference to the valley of Henna. In the Old Testament, it was called the Valley of Hinnom. And it was located right outside of Jerusalem. If you ever go to Israel with me, you'll actually see the Valley of Hinnom. But in the days of Jesus, there was a fire that was always burning outside the city to burn the trash from the city. But that's not the only thing that burned there. I alluded to it earlier on. When people died and they didn't have money for a burial, their bodies were burned there. When criminals were executed, their bodies were burned in that valley. But it was a terrible place. Gehenna. Old Testament history tells us that there was something actually worse than that that took place in this valley. And you may remember from our origin story series a few weeks ago, in the Old Testament, the Israelites practiced something that they actually had learned from the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. And they began to offer up their children as sacrifices to the God of Molech. We know that two Old Testament kings of Israel actually were involved in this. One was Manasseh, one was King Ahaz. 
And they made their children walk into the fire. In fact, they would actually use whips to drive their children into the fire. And their children would be in so much pain, they would be in so much agony, torment, as you can imagine, they would weep and they would well and they would grind their teeth together. And so Jesus, as he's speaking to this Jewish audience, he describes hell. He says, you know what? You can relate to this. It's like Gehenna. You're familiar with Gehenna? They're like, oh yeah. Where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It was almost as if Jesus was saying, listen, I'm doing my best to describe this place to you, so you will not go there. But my point is simply this. I don't care how bad your life has been. And I know some of us have had horrible lives, but it's no comparison to what hell's gonna be like. Let me give you the fourth misunderstanding. After I've served my time in hell, somebody will pray me out. Uh, there is actually several theological teachings that have come to the surface over the last few years of, as people have tried to describe away hell. One is known as ultimate reconciliation. And literally what it means is this. When you go to hell, you will spend as much time as God deems you need to spend there to pay for your sins. In other words, you, you do the crime, you do the time, right? And then you will actually get out of hell. Everybody ultimately will end up in heaven. Ultimate reconciliation. That means that one day Adolf Hitler would end up in heaven with all of the Jews that he had executed. That means that the guys who flew the planes into the Twin Towers on 9-11 would one day be in heaven with all the people that they killed on 9-11. That's ultimate reconciliation. But is that true? We'll go back to Luke chapter 16, verse 26. Abraham is speaking and he says, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you Cannot. This is what I want you to understand as you really study out the Bible as it relates to hell. In God's plan, there is no purgatory. In God's plan, there is no reincarnation. There is no second chance. There's no hope for relief. There's no time off for good behavior. There's none of that. In fact, Revelation chapter 14, verse 11 is talking about permanent hell, and it says the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. Now, there's one other thing that we learned from the story I want to point out. When this rich man becomes convinced that, hey, this is my eternal doom, this is what the rest of eternity is going to be, he's instantly concerned, it's interesting, about his brothers. Now, he spent his whole life only thinking about one person, thinking about himself. He didn't care about Lazarus laying outside the door wanting something to eat. He didn't care about anybody else. Life was all about him. But when he dies, all of a sudden he realizes that life had a dimension that he missed. And all of a sudden, he cares about those who are still living. Notice his request in verse 27. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. In other words, hey, I got a great idea. Abraham, if you could just bring Lazarus back to life, bring him back from the dead, send him back to earth, he could visit my family. And when they would see Lazarus, they remember Lazarus. He used to be outside my door. They know when he died. If they saw Lazarus and he said, you don't want to go there, they would believe. Now, that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. You know what Abraham was saying? They already have the word of God. They have what Moses wrote. They have what the prophets wrote. They have what Solomon wrote. They have what David wrote. They have the great historical books that we just looked at in origin story. Just let them read the word of God. But notice his response. No father Abraham, he said, verse 30. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. I thought it was interesting when I was reading this story for the millionth time 
I noticed that repentance isn't mentioned anywhere in the story. But finally, finally in hell, this man gets it. Oh, it was about repentance. The problem is he gets it too late. See, he realizes in hell that he missed the whole point of his spiritual life on earth. It's all about repentance. It's all about acknowledging that I am a sinner and I'm separated from God by my sin, but God so loved the world, he gave his son to be my savior, to die on the cross so that I could be reconciled and restored back into a relationship with God. But for that to happen, what does repentance mean? It means there has to be a changing of the mind. It's a 180. I'm going against God, but I repent and now I'm going to God. So he says in verse 31, Abraham said to him, listen, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. By the way, this is a direct reference. This is really what Jesus was saying. Trust me on this one. If they don't trust the prophets, if they don't trust those guys, they wouldn't even listen to someone who rises from the dead. Just so you know, I'm gonna be that someone. I'm gonna rise from the dead and I can tell you right now, they're not gonna listen to me. I mean, think about this. People watched Jesus die on the cross. They saw his body put in a tomb. After the resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days on this earth. And he says some of them still couldn't believe it. By the way, do you know what that tells me? It tells me that God's word is more powerful than any supernatural phenomenon. I'm telling you, when you read it in the Bible, when you hear it from the Bible, you are getting greater evidence. You are getting more persuasive information than you could ever get from an angelic visit, from reincarnation, from communicating with the dead, even bringing somebody back to life. I'm telling you, there is nothing more powerful than the word of God. It's all that's needed to bring you. It's all that's needed to bring me, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends to a place of repentance where they realize it's really not about me, it's about what God, and what God has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ. I wanna leave you with a couple of lessons as I let you go this week. And here's the first one. The Bible is the most important evidence a person can examine. Now, I, I know what some of you are thinking, whether you're here listening or whether you're at home watching, I, I know what some of you are thinking. <laughs> you're thinking, I don't believe any of this. I mean, what kind of nut job believes that you live a life on this earth and depending on your relationship with God, you either get to spend all eternity in this wonderful place of mansions and gold streets called heaven or you live all eternity in this incredibly horrible place called hell. Plus, Mike, I have a question for you. If your God is so loving, why would he ever send someone to a place like this? And I'm glad you asked because that's the question I'm gonna answer next weekend. But what you're thinking is, I, I don't believe any of this, and to which my response is, hey, it's America, you know? You can believe whatever you want to believe. I would, I would simply encourage you to do this. Don't waste your time studying the world's major religions. Don't waste your time asking for miracles and signs. Don't, don't, don't expect some supernatural phenomenon to take place. I would just encourage you over the next few weeks, make a study of the Bible. Launch a program on your own. If you're interested in this topic, let me re recommend a great book. It's called Sense and Nonsense About Heaven and Hell. It's a phenomenal little book. It's less than $10. You can get it on Amazon. But order it. Sense and Nonsense About Heaven and Hell. Get your Bible. Put them side by side. Do your own study. And examine the evidence and what it says.
and see what God does in your heart as a result of the study of his word. I'm telling you, the Bible is the most important evidence a person can examine. This will be the second thing I would leave you with this weekend, and this is more on a personal note. Whether it makes us comfortable or not, we need to be warning people about hell. We may not like it, and you may wonder, how do I get in that conversation? Hey, you wanna have a beer and talk about hell? Probably not, but we need to be telling people about the reality of hell. Can you imagine, think of, think of the passionate political conversations we've been having. When's the last time, seriously, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but when's the last time you were anywhere near as passionate about having a conversation with someone explaining the gospel of how Jesus Christ can change a life so that they wouldn't have to go to hell? Do you know what I've learned as Christians? We're much more concerned about how we're gonna spend the next four years than we are how our neighbor, our family member, our coworker, our golf buddy is gonna spend eternity. We have to start talking about this. I mean, think of it this way. If you were driving home maybe from church or food line or wherever, right? And say you pulled into your driveway and you looked over to the left and you saw your neighbor's house on fire. We would all do immediately the same thing. Every one of us would dial 911. And then you know what else we would do? If we thought it was any way remotely safe to get into that house and to make sure that nobody was still in the house, we would go in that house. None of us would pull in the driveway, look over and see our neighbor's house on fire and think, hmm, I'm sure somebody else would tell them. Not a one of us would pull in our driveway, see our neighbor's house on fire and say, you know what, I think I'm gonna pray for them. What do we have to do? We have to tell them. And it's no different when it comes to the topic of hell. We need to tell people that there is a hell, but there is a way you can avoid hell and you can experience heaven. I love how Paul put it in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How cool is that? And then he writes this, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Don't think preaching, just think communicating, sharing the story with them. How can anyone preach unless they are sent? And then I love this, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. The very same Greek word that is translated good news is translated gospel. How will they know unless somebody tells them? How will people go unless they're sent? So I wanna give you permission to go. I want, to, I want you to feel sent. I want you to pray, God, give me an opportunity this week through conversation to maybe tell someone the story of how Jesus Christ changed my life and how now I don't have to worry about this place called hell because my future's been guaranteed in heaven. 
What if every one of us just prayed that God would give us the opportunity and we actually look for the opportunity to do that? They're not going to know unless somebody tells them. And that's the role we get to play. Let's bow together. I know this is a tough subject to talk about. But as you'll see next week, as we talk about what a loving God sent someone to hell, you'll see that God didn't create hell for human beings. He created hell for Satan and his angels after they rebelled against him. The problem is because as humans, the choices we make, we could, we could also end up in hell. But here's the good news. Because of a single choice we can make, we get to end up in heaven. I want you to know you don't have to go to hell. You, you can go to heaven. See, that's, that's the good news. That, that's the gospel. And you do it by simply accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I mean, Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. And it's a free gift from God. And if you've never made that decision, you, you could receive Jesus Christ right now. You could just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I acknowledge that. And I understand the only way I can get reconciled back into a relationship with God is through what you did for me on the cross, your death, your burial, your resurrection. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Let me leave you with this verse. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So you don't need supernatural phenomena, you don't need miracles. What you need is the hope of an eternal home with God through Jesus Christ. That's what I need, that's what you need, and I'm telling you once that's in place, it's amazing how it will take care of your fear of the future. Not only that, it will change your whole perspective regarding life now regarding eternity. Father, thank you. As we're going to see next week, a little spoiler alert, that God, you don't send anybody to hell. If people go to hell, it's because they choose to go there. Because you've provided another way. In fact, we're reminded that you're not willing that any perish, but everybody come to repentance. But you gave us a free will. I just pray, Father, that people's hearts will be softened. Our pride would be lowered and we would realize, ah, oh, wow, I need saving. And come to that place of repentance, of doing a 180, changing their mind about who Jesus is and what he can do for them. And Father, this week as we move throughout our community, help us to see people through the light of, I wonder where they're gonna spend eternity. And Father, give us the wisdom and the timing and the tact to have that conversation, to talk about the hope that we have within us that can alleviate any fear of the future. And God, we're going to give you the glory for what you're going to do. We pray all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you guys.